Thank you very much. It was, it was very gracious and embarrassing. Uh, I hardly know what to say. I'm thinking of a Lumpkin story to tell you, which you'll probably get, <laughs> probably get in trouble for, because I was, I, was, I was messing with the mic before. This really happened at, at St. Paul's. It was one of my favorite moments. And of course, it was an accident. But uh, we were at an annual meeting, and it, things were challenging, and Mike couldn't get the mic to work. <laughs> And so at the beginning of the annual meeting with the entirety of Scarden Hall entirely packed out, he said, full voice, am I turned on? <laughs> I mean, it just brought down the house. It was, it was not, it, it's, it's like the Church of England story of the man who's an older priest and can't get the mic working. And he, he finally says, I'm sorry, I can't get the mic to work. And everybody says back at him, and also with you. In any event, I'm glad to be here. I've got to try to uh, deal with an event which is enormous in scope and try to summarize it in a way that would be helpful in terms of the things that I think are significant. So what I want to do is tell you what I'm going to try to do and then pray and then do it. And I want to make sure that we're clear at the outset that I'm not going to do all the talking because I grew up in a family where you had to fend for yourself at the dinner table. And this is a a challenging area of subjects that we're going to be dealing with tonight, and not all of it may be familiar to you, so there'll be a time for questions and interaction. I want to make sure that you get a chance to, to voice uh, whatever concerns or questions that you have in such a way that you can at least understand better uh, the perspective uh, that I'm seeking to bring. So uh, I'll probably talk for 30, 35 minutes. Maybe we'll see how I do. I, I, I'm known to go on, so we'll see how I do, but especially on topics like this. What I want to do is uh, I want to start tonight with a presuppositional discussion from C.S. Lewis for just a second, and then I'm going to look at what I think are the three major issues as we consider this general convention. Now remember, we're talking about a blue book, which is the book that every deputy and bishop who's going, this is a once every three year meeting of the Episcopal Church, it's almost 800 pages. <laughs> and, and so I'm trying to summarize 800 pages, but these three areas I think are very significant. One is uh, the possibility of authorizing liturgies for the blessing of same-sex relationships in some form. The second is the communion of the unbaptized. And the third is the restructuring, or not, of the Episcopal Church itself and the General Convention of the Episcopal Church in particular. So those, of all the topics that are being discussed, I'm going to zero in on those three. And uh, I'll try to say something about each one of them and why I think they're significant. Does that sound like a plan? All right. It may seem like a sip from a fire hydrant, for those of you who haven't heard me speak before. So the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we do uh, thank you for this day, for your presence with us, for your love for us, for your grace that has been poured out to each of us that has enabled us to reach this point. We thank you for this parish, for her distinguished history, and we remember all the shoulders of those who've gone before us and been faithful in this place, without whom we wouldn't be able to be here. And we pray, Lord, that the legacy of the gospel and the legacy of their faith would not only uh, be honored tonight, but would be uh, energized and sent forward in a faithful way. 
As we wrestle with challenging subjects and tricky questions, we pray that you give us our Holy Spirit's guidance, the, the Spirit of the people of God. Enable us to think your thoughts after you, to understand the ideas, to, to raise the right questions, to hear uh, what is going on so that through this time we might understand ourselves better, our context better, our church better, be able to pray more effectively for our church and be more faithful stewards of the gospel in our own lives, in this parish, and in this diocese. We entrust this time to you. We thank you for it, and we pray that you who've given us to us would, would guide us by your spirit and build the kingdom of God in our midst, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's sort of a joke at, at, at St. Paul's for those who, of you who know me, uh, and I, f I feel like I'm almost talking about a former life, but and it's become a joke where I am now, and it's, it really is beyond ridiculous to me that I've been where I am for 10 years, having been at St. Paul's for eight years. I don't know where the time has gone, but there's invariably a C.S. Lewis reference. Uh, so tonight the C.S. Lewis reference is coming at the beginning, and you have a, a series of handouts, and this is the one which has really big writing on it that fits on the page. And I, I don't want to exaggerate, but having wrestled with this stuff for a while, I cannot fully put into words how profound, but also how important what Lewis is saying uh, in this passage in terms of the, the issues and the time in which we find ourselves. It's from a book of his which isn't read enough, and one of his most important books called The Abolition of Man. And if, you, if you'd be kind enough to take out the quote, I want to read it to you, and then I want to say some things about it before I launch, because I'm going to use it at the outset as sort of the, the basis from which I'm heading. He's talking about modernity and the ancients. He talks about contemporary work and life under the heading of things he calls magic and applied science. Everybody see where I am? There is something which unites magic and applied science while separating both from the wisdom of earlier ages. So he's contrasting the world in which, now he's written this multiple decades ago, but it's, it sounds like it's written yesterday. But he's contrasting that with the wisdom of the ages. And this is from a man who said at one point in his life, he read three old books for every new one. There's an interesting thought. For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality. And the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. For magic and applied science alike, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men. The solution is a technique, and both in the practice of this technique are ready to do things hitherto regarded as disgusting and impious. Now, it's a weighty quote and worthy of much pondering, but the part I want to highlight for you is the heart of what he says in those middle two sentences. He's saying basically this. In the ancient world, there is a sense of givenness. There is a sense of order. There is the world of creation which you encounter every day and the world which God has made. You are a creature and God is the creator. And that is the nature of the reality with which you have to do. And you have wishes and desires and hopes and dreams and your complex psychosomatic reality. But to be faithful, no matter where you find yourself in your time, you've got to understand that 
reality is the basis on which you are to mold things, not the other way around. As you encounter reality, you're the one that has to shift. You're the one that has to be called into question. Lewis even had the habit all his life of, of taking a walk every day deliberately, no matter how hard it was raining. And believe me, in Oxford, it really rains. So that he would have to encounter a reality outside himself and be reminded that he was not the center of the universe. He wasn't even the center of his own community. He wasn't the center of his own family. He wasn't the center of his own relationships. So reality is here and my desires are here. And I have to understand reality and and enable my soul to be molded to that. So God's out here. Creation's out here. The will of God's out here. I'm a creature. God's a creator. Turn it around the other way. And what you get in modernity, says Lewis, incredible that he wrote this decades ago, is you get the opposite. You get the wishes, the desires, the insistence, the uh, psychological uh, self-assertion, the assertion of identity. This is who I am. Nobody was saying that in Lewis's day. That's the way that you end an argument right now on university campuses in this country. I feel very strongly about this. This is who I am. End of discussion. Magic and applied science, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men. So it begins with me and goes to reality. The entire movement is entirely the opposite in every possible sense. Reality is what gets molded. Reality is what gets called into question. I am the center. Think I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Boy, this really goes over poorly in general, but does it ever go over poorly in America, where we've got Frank Sinatra telling us, I did it my way. You get the idea. Uh, You've got to make a choice, and you've got to be aware. And I can't fully put into words at the beginning of the 21st century how much this is the fundamental battle of our time, right here. You are being assaulted by a world that is telling you that your wishes and your desires and you are the center of it all and and you need to mold reality and shape it in accordance with your wishes. And you need to understand that as a Christian there is a sense of givenness so that when you start the day you actually didn't make yourself, you didn't make this day, you didn't make this parish, you didn't make the gift of time, you didn't make the gift of the relationships, if you have a family you didn't make any of those people and it's all out there as a given, it comes to you as a gift but it comes to you as something that is given. Whereas you're in a culture where you did it your way and here you come and you've got these desires and these wants and these approaches and this is who I am. So the Microsoft ad says, where do you want to go today? Now those two ways of looking at the world are radically different things. All right, let me tell you my premise at the outset and then I'm going to illustrate it. I want to make the case tonight that The Episcopal Church, if you study General Convention carefully, is uh, modern when it should be ancient and ancient when it should be modern. If you want my presentation in one sentence, that's it. We are are modern where we should be ancient and ancient where we should be modern. So I want to start with the area of same-sex relationships, and I'm going to start, if you can believe it, by reading you from the liturgy that is the first liturgy in the history of Anglicanism on marriage. So it's going to seem familiar to you because it's going to sound, for those of you who know the Book of Common Prayer and the marriage rites, some of the language is going to be similar. But I'm reading from the middle of the 16th century. 
So this is going to sound very different to you. And what I'm interested in is the way that marriage is described in this world in which we find ourselves. And uh, it, it is a very, very interesting study. You can find all the prayer books in the Christian tradition uh, of Anglicans online now. It's amazing. Um, and th- I'm, I've got this uh, sitting on my iPhone connected. I don't, I don't even have it in my documents. I'm just reading it off the web. We didn't grow up in a world like this. Uh, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. Dearly beloved friends, we are gathered together in the sight of God and in the face of this congregation to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony, which is an honorable state instituted of God in paradise in the time of man's innocence, signifying unto us the mystical union which is betwixt Christ and his church. Which holy estate Christ adorned and beautified with his presence and his first miracle that he wrought in Cana of Galilee and is commended of St. Paul to be honored among all men and therefore is not to be enterprised nor taken in hand unadvisedly, lightly, or wantonly to satisfy men's carnal lusts and appetites like bruised beasts that have no understanding, but reverently, discreetly, advisedly, soberly, and in the fear of God. Duly considering the causes for which matrimony was ordained, one cause was the procreation of children to be brought up in the fear and nurture of the Lord. Secondly, it was ordained as a remedy against sin, and to avoid fornication, that such persons be married. That they might live in matrimony and to keep themselves chaste and undefiled members of Christ's body. Thirdly, for the mutual society help and comfort that the one ought to have of the other, both in prosperity and adversity. Into which holy estate these two persons present now come to be joined. Therefore, if any man can show any just cause why they may not lawfully be joined together, let him now speak or else hereafter forever hold his peace. It's a remarkable document. And the reason why I want to start there is we're in exactly the the world that Lewis is describing in this paragraph. I want to start with just a word about the Christian theology of marriage before we get to the topic of same-sex unions and the blessing rite, which you're going to see in just a second. In brief... 20 centuries of Christians trying to figure out how marriage works basically have the sense that it works something like this. It's got four purposes, okay? It's for union, right? The two shall become one flesh. The bodies fit together, right? Be fruitful and multiply, right? So union, communion. It was not good for the man to be alone, right? Procreation, and that's clearly in this passage, isn't it? There's an incredible tie in this passage between marriage and children. We'll get to that in just a moment. And uh, finally, and I think in in many ways the the one that's most sadly lost, although we could debate whether children is, is the one that's now most sadly lost, and that is as a remedy for sin. Did you hear that in the passage? Now, in the passage, he 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 takes the angle that St. Paul has. And so it has a more fleshly and sexual and physical angle. But the whole idea of sin 
and being rescued from sin and marriage is, is not simply physically being rescued, it's being rescued in every possible way. I, I have news for you in case you didn't know this about yourself. We have a nearly limitless capacity to make ourselves the center of the universe. Have you noticed? Do you know one of the reasons if you're married, God gave you a spouse, one of the principal reasons? It's to rescue you from yourself. Because you and I have this incredible capacity uh, to just get so centered in on ourselves. Now, just one quick story, and I apologize for those of you who know this already, but this is a St. Paul story, but it's about my marriage. And uh, we were in the midst of a huge Donnybrook with a vestry about funds and buildings at St. Paul's. Say you're surprised. But this was, this was a huge Donnybrook, and it had been going on for a long time. And I don't know how many vestry meetings we'd had in three months, but it was a ridiculously high number and way too high. And some of them went five hours, some of them went six hours. And we lived on 113 Plantation uh, Drive in Somerville at the time. And uh, it was about 11 o'clock at night, and I was so frustrated with the vestry and the inability to get past this uh, apparently in, intransigent situation uh, that I couldn't sleep. So I got up, you know, I don't know, 11.15 or something, my wife's next to me in bed, and I go out, and I, I'll never understand why I did this, but anyway, making a long story short, I took microwavable vegetables because it was the only thing I could find. I wanted to nibble on something and take out my frustration on something tangible. So I nuked these vegetables, and I was sitting at the dining room table, and I was eating vegetables. It was dark. It was about 11.30 at night, right? This is, this is our lives, the kind of ludicrous things that we do, okay? So, and I'm taking the fork like this, and I'm going, blang. And as I'm doing it, I'm thinking of vestry members, you know? I, just, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's embarrassing to admit this, you know? And I mean, I was, I was I, you know, cauliflower and broccoli. It can, it, it, you really get a sense of satisfaction. And so, you know, I'm, tr I'm trying to get out my frustrations, and unbeknownst to me, and this is going on for a while, I don't know exactly how long. Anyway, unbeknownst to me, my wife gets up, I'm not in bed, she wonders where I am, she comes out through the living room to the dining room, I have no idea that she's done any of this, and she slinks into the chair on the other side of the table. I still, I'm so self-preoccupied, I don't even know she's there. And I, there I am, cauliflower, broccoli, vestry members, you know, bang, bang, bang. And I'm, I'm, I lift up the fork one more time, and I hear this, this soft voice on the other side of the table say to me, is it just going to be you and the vegetables, or can I get a word in here? <laughs> and I just, I just burst out laughing. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's an embarrassing story at one level. My life reduced to, you know, me, vegetables, and vestry frustration. You know, talk about a little teeny, but we all have this capacity. But my wife cracks a joke and can see, you know, that I'm going nuts and, and gets me out of myself. And I really laughed hard, probably too hard, but it was a huge relief. And that's what spouses do. And we need that. So you have this image of marriage as, if I can use this language, a factory of sanctification. And notice the way in which it's described in the liturgy. All these things are given, right? Union, communion, procreation, and prevention, all these things are given. Every marriage is supposed to work this way. This is what God has ordained. Don't do it unless you're going to be willing to answer to the judgment of God about how you conduct yourself in the midst of it because you're supposed to do it reverently, carefully, with a sense of respect. This is a serious business. You've got to take vows and say to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, and you have absolutely no idea of the implications 
of what you're saying when you get married. It always blows me away every time with the liturgy, sitting there in the back watching two people in their 20s or 30s usually saying those words and realizing it could be 30 years, 40 years, 50 years down the line. My wife's mother died in the last half year and her parents were married over six decades. You know, what, what, what in the world goes into all that? It's just a mind-boggling number. We just celebrated our 25th anniversary. So that, that's more than double. I can't even get my mind around 25 and 60 plus. But they set a vow a long time ago. It had six plus de- decades of implications. Because Bonhoeffer says in a letter to his niece at one point, when you get married, it will no longer be the case that uh, marriage will, will be something that invites you in and molds you. You will be molded by your marriage. Your vows mold you from now on. As you enter into the marriage, the idea of marriage invites you. But once you get married, your vows define you rather than the other way around. And it has incredible implications. So the former head of what was once Columbia Bible College, now Columbia International University, retired from his job and is at home doing what? Taking care of his wife because she has Alzheimer's. Amazing story, right here in our own state, with the Board of Trustees and the school's blessing, because he took a vow. And there's great articles by him in Christianity Today on the floor uh, with something else that his wife spilled, and he's listening to Chuck Swindoll preaching on the radio, and Chuck Swindoll saying, where are the guys serving their wives? Where are the guys? And he says, I'm right here, Chuck. <laughs> I'm right here, you know, in the midst of this sloppy mess in the kitchen. And, but the point is, all because he took a vow. He's being shaped by his vow, not the other way around, right? It's not, it's not him that's going to shape the vow. It's the vow that's shaping him. Okay, so you see, you see what I'm getting at. This sense of givenness that comes at you is very much what Lewis is talking about. All right, now, all that by way of background to say, let's look at our little interesting uh, resolutions here. <clears throat> and you have two of them. And this, the, the first one and the main one I want to look at is uh, A049. Everybody see where I am? It's got four paragraphs. Now, this is a proposed resolution. Heaven only knows what happens when it goes into the, the cheese, cardboard, and sausage factory, which is general convention in terms of how it comes out the other side. But you've got to start somewhere. Okay, so this is a liturgical resource, says the first paragraph. And the second paragraph is very important for one word, and that is authorize. The Episcopal Church has never at a national level authorized a liturgy even for trial use in this area. So this is a significant step forward that says uh, this is something that we need to honor liturgically because we know that it's of God and it needs to be blessed by the community and lived out in the community. Third paragraph talks about bishops and the way in which uh, they're in different contexts like states where uh, same-sex unions or even in some cases now same-sex marriage is, is something that's part of their context, and, and they need to provide, and I quote, a generous pastoral response to meet the needs of members of, of this church. You should already have your antenna out. Notice how, notice how the, the nature of the wishes of the members seems to be shaping what's done instead of the other way around. Resolve, the standing committee will develop an open process to review this, and they're going to gather all sorts of stuff. And what's interesting about the fourth paragraph, 
which is actually a, a remarkably arrogant and on purpose comment is it's not just for the Episcopal Church, it's for the entire Anglican communion. That is to say they desire to export this to 80 million Anglicans in over 160 countries uh, worldwide. That's a pretty significant step. Now, there is, if you can believe this, an 80-page report in the so-called Blue Book of General Convention that tries to lay out the theology on which this whole thing is based. And I made myself suffer through it again today, some 80 pages. And here is what you find. The theology is a theology in which Uh, God is a creator and a covenant maker and a blesser. And we find ourselves in the world of the 1979 Book of Common Prayer where, did you know this, baptism is optional. In the sense that confession of sin is optional. And so baptism has this importance and yet the confession of sin can be eliminated. So you, you need to be baptized to be a member of the body of Christ, but you don't need to confess your sins. So just, I saw those looks like you were getting alarmed. I'm, I played a trick on you. Baptism is optional is the implication, but baptism is essential the way the book is set up. But what's not necessary is the confession of sins. You can actually be in an Episcopal Church in the United States for a year in official liturgy and never confess sin. One priest in Mississippi found himself in a parish like that in California for a month, and when he came back, he wrote a reflection and he, he was so profoundly uneasy with where he found himself, he spent a lot of time thinking about how wrong it was. It completely freaked him out, just for a month, to be in a place where he was like that. The entire theology of this report is written in that world. Sin is entirely absent. The church is about blessing. The church is about co-creating with God. The church is about helping God work in the world. It goes from us in the church to what God is doing in the world and we get to participate. Made me think of uh, Paul in Romans. Hope that is seen is not hope. This entire report is about hope that's seen. And uh, it's a heady trip because the real theology, the sort of $64,000 linchpin of theology is you get to bring in a new Pentecost. The theological oomph of the report is If you look at scripture carefully, God's always expanding borders. He's always tearing down limits. He's always removing prejudices. He's always taking structures that are sinful and inadequate. That's me who said sinful. They never described them that way. And moving them on. So Peter uh, in in Acts 15 is is this crucial section, for those of you who know that section in the New Testament, for the report. Because if you remember, the Holy Spirit comes to him and says... You're supposed to bring the gospel to Gentiles, right? And he's, he's a Jew, and to the Jews first is the way that he's raised. And he worships in a synagogue where there's a court of women, and there's a, there's a section for the Gentiles, and it's not for the Jews, right? And so he's got this sense, not, 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 not unless it's for God's people. You don't go outside. And he has a vision, and he's supposed to take it to the Gentiles. And, and the report says that's an image of what Pentecost does. And so what you've got in the report is... The excitement of uh, the church that overcame prejudice about race, the church that overcame prejudice about uh, women and sexual roles is now the church that's overcoming prejudice in this area and bringing in Pentecost. So instead of receiving Pentecost as something that's out there that comes to us, we actually get to bring it about by doing these liturgies. 
And what's remarkable about the liturgies themselves is they look like uh, the Book of Common Prayer and Marriage Service, except especially without any sense of the prevention of sin, which is on its way out in a lot of contemporary liturgies. So what you get is you get this sense that you're in a different context, you need to recognize what God is doing and cooperate and help God to break down limits and bless other people and bring about Pentecost. And where you and I find ourselves is in a part of the world, in a time in history, when this is the barrier that God is breaking down. And this was all done before the president just made his recent remarks, right? And say what you want, and I don't want to get off on politics, but we do have a bully pulpit in this country. And it it is not an, an accident that the president said what he said in terms of the momentum of the elite in this country. He simply represents the viewpoint of a massive amount of the leadership, media, politics, and other places of the country. But there's a significant feeling of this, this issue being the one that you need to embrace if you're going to be part of the leadership and part of the future that matters. right? And you can just feel the weight of all this interest. Now, when you look at the liturgy and you start to think about these unions, there's a couple of things that ought to bother you right at the outset. There's nothing about children that's in these um, liturgies, and there's nothing about children in the, in the theology. And part of the reason I bring that up is, it may seem super obvious to you, but actually the primary purpose of marriage is as a laboratory for sanctification, not simply for you, but for your children. <laughs> and you and I are so selfish that if we don't have children that are biologically related to us, we are likely not to care for them properly. <laughs> We are probably still so selfish that if they're biologically related to us, we won't care for them very well. But everybody who's a parent can tell you, if you have a child, everything changes. And one of the weird things is, it doesn't matter what it is, you love it by definition. And one of the main reasons is because it's part of you. (laughs) And it represents part of you. And we love ourselves, and so we love our progeny. And God has set up uh, marriage so that children can be raised in a context which enables them to have, here it comes, limits. (laughs) perspectives, right, so, so that the child comes to the world with a sense of given family and given parents, and they have a wrong way about doing things, so they need to be trained up in the nurture and the knowledge of the Lord. Did you hear that section of the liturgy? And implied in trained up in the nurture and the knowledge of the Lord is that, that, they, that they're going to exist in the laboratory of a family, and their parents is who covenanted with one another and are trying to learn how to have limits and be rescued from themselves can raise children who can honor God and learn how to be rescued from themselves. So it's, it's very linked to children. You and I find ourselves in a modern world where uh, the, the link to children has been completely severed because of the sexual revolution, and in particular, the biological reality of reproductive technology, right? So that the, the, the reproductive act is now robbed of, most of the time, its potential implications although I always marvel at all the people who say how safe it is, and then you all know that uh, the, the, no matter what you use, prophylactics fail a certain percentage of the time. They never include that in the presentations. But see, up until about 1960 in history, you couldn't get involved in sexual activity without having the reality of possible children there. And then it all shifted. And as a result, it became more possible to be more self-centered than ever because before, you had to be, be at least somewhat connected to this other thing called your spouse and these other things called your children. Now you've only got a spouse if you don't need to worry about any possible 
biological implications. And then you get this huge emphasis on personal fulfillment, right, and journeys. One of the things I reviewed this week, and I don't know how meaningful this will be to you, is in 1972, 40 years ago this year, was the year that, that the book, The Open Marriage, came out. And uh, I was re-looking at it. Husband and wife team of anthropologists urge a new view of marriage, 1972. I won't uh, burden you with the whole thing, but it's simply an illustration of this whole world of, of personal fulfillment that, that we're talking about. The old contract, the book says, demands denial of self, playing the couple's game, rigid role behavior, and absolute fidelity. Oh, that's terrible. On the other hand, she continued, the open contract with which this book, which is actually called The Open Marriage, that was the title, published by the O'Neills in 1972, four decades ago this year. The open contract offers, listen to this language, undependent living, individual freedom, flexible roles, mutual trust, and wait for it, here it comes, 1972, expansion through openness. 1972. Scary stuff. And this is the world in which you find uh, th this kind of a resource <clears throat> coming from. And the reason why I want to attack it from this vantage point is th there are too many theological assumptions now in the Episcopal Church that are taken for granted that if you, th that if you enter into dialogue with the superficial realities of the issue, you're not going to get at the core issue, and you're actually going to be talking by the person in terms of the real issues involved. What you have to do with a liturgy that's proposed like this is go underneath it and, and ask the hard question, what is the nature of marriage? What is the purpose of marriage? What is the nature of reality? What is the relationship between God and Holy Scripture and Christian, Christian tradition and, and these realities? You have to start there, and that, that raises a whole series of other questions. If you start with the liturgy or the language of the resolution or people's experience, what are you doing? You're going from people's experience in instead of from, from the nature of God and God's revelation and reality out. See, that's exactly what Lewis is talking about. So the very language that you heard in that book on marriage in 1972, expansion through openness, is the kind of language that you hear in the theological justification for these new relationships. Now, they're very clear, and I think this is important. Michael was very kind in what he said, but I, do, I think it's very important to to be fair to people, they are interested in fidelity and all the other values that a good marriage would have. So this, this is not anything other than an intended monogamous relationship. But the difficulty is they can't actually tell you what it is. Now let me just pause so we're all together. Did you realize what I just said? They can't tell you what it is. If you look at all the language in the Episcopal Church in the last 15, 30 years on this subject, and you ask yourself this question, what is it that we're doing? It, it's not answered. Lifelong, mutually self-enhancing relationships. Uh, coveted, covenanted, mutually accountable relationships. All this kind of language. Yes, okay, thank you. That, that's interesting. Yes, but what, what is the nature of the relationship? Is it marriage? No, it's not marriage. Okay, well, what is it? It's a mutual, uh, self-fulfilling uh, open, encouraging relationship, okay? But, but the Christian tradition doesn't have that. There's only two states of human existence in Christianity, marriage and singleness. Those are the only two states for 2,000 years. 
And uh, they've got this new thing, and they, they can describe it adjectivally. They can describe the qualities of it. But, but I'm asking a different question. I'm asking what it is. And actually, they're not sure, and they never fully answer the question. It's a great il illustration of this whole uh, movement away from reality that I'm talking about. Anyway, there's a few thoughts for you to get your juices flowing on uh, that, that, relation that, that relationship between theology and these rites. It seems like uh, the discussion on this heading into the summer is going to be quite passionate between two groups of people. One is a, a more institutional group of people who are more worried about these liturgies, and the other is a more, I would call them, ideologically-based people who are very interested and very, very excited about what's going on, uh, especially what the president just said, and they're pushing hard. And it's far from clear which of those two groups is going to have the upper hand. Because one of the things about being an advocate for justice and social change is if you want to do it, you have to have an institution to do it in. And if you blow the institution to smithereens, then you've lost your agent and your vehicle for change. So the institutional uh, reappraisers, as I call them, they're, they're more worried about these liturgies because they realize how controversial they are. And the sort of justice ideological reappraisers, they, they want them the day before yesterday. And those are the two groups that are going to be doing battle. And it's going to come down to wording of resolutions. And they'll try to word it in such a way that you think they're not doing what they are, in fact, doing, which they've been doing with resolutions for a long time. All right? All right, let me say something about uh, communion of the unbaptized next. And then I want to say something about restructuring, and then I'm going to stop. Um, communion of the unbaptized may seem foreign to you. Uh, there are two resolutions that you have in your handouts. One is a quite explicit re resolution advocating for the change. The other is a resolution that advocates for more study. At the outset, let's be clear on terms together tonight, because th this is an area where in contemporary church debates, people are sloppy with language. And open communion is one of the phrases that you'll hear used. I don't like the phrase open communion because open communion among Christians means something else. So just so we're all together, uh, open communion usually means, notice how I said that, usually means the idea that every baptized Christian is invited to the Lord's table. That's the practice of Anglicans, right? So uh, in any church in this diocese, Lord willing and the creek doesn't rise, uh, the invitation to communion should be for anybody. So if, you, if you're from another parish or another tradition, we view you as different regiments in the Lord's army, and you're welcome to the family meal because you're a member of the family. Right? So all baptized Christians. That's open communion in the sense that it's open to everybody who's part of the body of Christ. A lot of Christian traditions practice that. Methodism, Lutherans, things like that. The Roman Catholic Church does not. They practice closed communion. Communion is only for Roman Catholics. When Elizabeth and I got married, her parents, who are died in the wool, Pittsburgh Irish Catholics, uh, could not, even though they wanted to, receive communion at our wedding. So they very graciously received at their own communion the day before on Saturday, and then were present at our liturgy, which is very, very gracious of them. But there was a, you, you know, we could, there's, a, there's a divide there. You need to be aware, in case you're not, that there are some uh, Protestant denominations in America which also practice closed communion. It's not just Roman Catholics. So you understand what it, when I use the word open and closed communion, what I'm talking about. What this is talking about is not open communion. Not, uh, some people call this that, but that isn't what it is. This is communion of the unbaptized. 
And I think the best way to get at this is to, is to actually quote you from an Episcopal church. I won't tell you which one and where it is, but I'm going to quote you the invitation to communion. Okay, so you're at parish such and such, St. Swithin's in the swamp somewhere in the United States, and they've done the, the Eucharistic liturgy, and the priest comes out, and here, here comes the invitation. Ready? Whoever you are, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, I encourage you to come forward to receive grace and consolation as you move along the way. Interesting, right? Did you, did you hear how it was worded? It's very deliberately wide open, right? That's not restricting it to baptized Christians. It's anybody. And in that parish, believe me, it's absolutely anybody. So what's being advocated by this resolution is that practice. So this is not so much um, young children that's in view at is. This is a, a group of people in the Episcopal Church that have got a grip on God's inclusiveness. They have that theology that's in the liturgy report where God expands boundaries. They want that expansion through openness. And they're, they're frustrated because they experience a communion as somehow limiting, which of course it inevitably is, right? Your family meal at your house is limiting in that I can't be part of your family dinner even if I knock on the door and beg, because I'm not a part of your family, right? If you are not an American citizen, you can't vote. Doesn't mean you're not a nice person. Doesn't, doesn't mean you can't uh, try to become part of the country. But, but the point is, there are privileges and responsibilities that come with membership of the family. And there is a sense of limitation. They want to get rid of that limitation for the sake of bringing more people into the church. It's a noble aim at the level of hospitality and openness. The difficulty with it is, does it take seriously the nature of communion and Eucharistic practice? And I will simply say to you with interest that, for example, when you study the Christian tradition, you come to the period right after the New Testament, you run into a document called the Didache, that's D-I-D-A-C-H-E, which is, so far as we can figure, from the second century, you actually find a very explicit reference which says, now remember, this is early Christians in a very pagan, pluralistic world, much like the one you and I now are increasingly finding ourselves in. And the Didache is very clear. Communion is only for Christians. Don't give communion to other people. It's very important that they have a sense of their distinctiveness in the midst of all the confusion and pluralism and chaos spiritually. So if open communion was so important, why, when we get to the second century, really close to the New Testament period, do we find a demarcation that strong? It's, it's an important question, if you take the tradition seriously. You may note, with interest, if you look at the resolution, which is the stronger of the two, did you notice what they have to do? They have to, they have to change the canon. That ought to bother you, since Part of what it means to be in the Episcopal Church, if you're ordained, is you're supposed to follow the canons. Why is this resolution being proposed? Because more and more parishes in the Episcopal Church of the United States are doing it. And it's not just against Christian tradition. I think it's against good theology, but it's actually explicitly against the canons. So what are they doing? They're practicing something which is against the tradition and against the canons, and it's increasingly being put into practice, and they're doing it because of can you believe it? Their desires. See, they're bringing their desire for hospitality and welcoming and bringing in more people. 
And they're saying, this is, therefore, this, this reality needs to change because I have this desire. So I'm going to change it. And what's interesting about it is the way that they're going about it is a very lawless way, isn't it? Because for one thing, where are all the bishops disciplining all these people who are doing this? I mean, if we're going to make a change like this, let's have a debate and let's change the canon, but let's all do it at the same time. What you have now is parishes all over the country and in some cases whole dioceses practicing this. You can go to websites in the Episcopal Church and find this. All right, one more thing, and I'm going to stop. Uh, I brought uh, Will Willimon with me tonight from the Methodist tradition because I thought it would be fun to, to hear from somebody else. But you may know, and I, I think it's important that you know, just how unwieldy a general convention actually is. And as a result of that, there's been some discussion about the fact that maybe it might be a good idea if we, if we try to change the way that we're going about the structure of this thing. Now, I brought with me the cost of general convention. This is a once every three year meeting of the Episcopal Church. I won't have you guess. I'm going to read it. I'm going to try not to fall off a step when I read it. Okay? This is from the Episcopal Church's National Center. This is their statistics. General convention cost the church $8.3 million plus another $353,000 to the church national departments and, listen, $3.5 million to diocese to send all their lay people, clergy, and bishops to the meeting for a total cost of $12.2 million every three years. In case you are wondering, of the entire budget of the Episcopal Church, that is 7.6% annually. That's not... Uh, we, need, we need Everett Dirksen, right? A billion here and a billion there, and pretty soon it adds up to, uh, to real money. The, the late, great uh, senator from Illinois... See, now we use the word trillion and we throw it around. But um, one of the things that people have started to figure out is, you know, businesses seem to be going about things differently and industry seems to be going about things differently and schools seem to be going about things differently and there's a lot of talk about restructuring and efficiency and all these kind of things. So maybe the Episcopal Church ought to think about this and uh, you're not going to be surprised to hear there's enormous resistance to this. Uh, I wanted to quote Willimon to you because he's talking about the Methodists, and sometimes it's helpful to hear from another tradition. But this is, this is his first paragraph. They just finished their, their conference. It happens once a year. Can you imagine? You need to feel sorry for the Methodists. We have this once every three years. Theirs is every year. Okay, here's his opening paragraph. He uh, was at Duke Divinity School, became a, a bishop of the Methodist Church in Alabama, and he actually has just retired and is now going back to Duke Divinity School, a wonderfully fiery electric guy. General Conference in Tampa made history as the most expensive, least productive, most fatuous assemblage in the history of Methodism. (laughs) We spent, and I quote, $1,500 per minute. Let me just read that again. $1,500 per minute. Sunday evenings, a celebration of ministry fiasco was a metaphor for our nearly two weeks at the church's expense. Four hours of belabored supplication by the General Commission on Status and Role of Women, five ethnic national plans, strengthening the black church for the 21st century, United Methodist Men, Girl Scouts, Africa University, and a whole number of other agencies I can't even remember. One sub-theme from that endless night, even though we can't cite specific fruit, Please don't force us to change or expend less on ourselves. 
Even after suffering this abuse, that's his word, not mine, general convention, general conference, sorry, they were dealing with proposals for restructuring, like we are, imagine, like they might not need to change things. Our denominational system, said one speaker on the floor, continued to resist change by protecting archaic structures. From our seminaries to our boards and agency, institutional preservation has strong been a resistant influence throughout general conference. Entrenched organizational bureaucracies resist accountability. Sign him up. Uh, you could just change ever so slightly the wording, you got the same thing in the Episcopal Church. Now, there's a few people who are making proposals uh, to change this, and w what I want you to understand about this is just how out of whack the Episcopal Church is. If you look at the publishing industry, I used to edit the Jubilate Deo, Joy Hunter does now. When I started, which is 2002, January, with my new job, Elizabeth and I took over a paper which was printed with the 1950s technology. And the way that that worked, uh, for those of you who are dinosaurs, you'll have to humor me because I wasn't familiar with all this. You would uh, pay, co copy and paste the paper, and then you'd lay the whole thing out. Then you'd take it to somebody who would print uh, on, on this, this special machinery, the, the kind of uh, printed stuff that needed to be printed, and then that machinery would be taken to yet another plant where they take the sort of negatives of the print and print it out. That's the way the print industry works. At least it worked. Now, to, today the way it works is uh, I push a button for the Anglican Digest, I send a PDF document uh, to, to the largest publisher in, in the state of Arkansas, they send me an email back with suggested corrections, and then they print it, and it goes out all over the world. This is, a, this is Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. What, what all of the industry, the, the CEO of Walmart, did you know this? He can tell you the real-time sales figure from any city in any part of their infrastructure from the day before, right? So he could say, Somerville, South Carolina, real-time sales at the Walmarts in Somerville went up, down, or stayed the same by such and such a percentage off his computer. What does that do? It empowers, it's all about local empowerment, getting rid of structures, removing layers that, that camouflage accountability, and creating efficiency, right? That's what it's all about. And what do you have with the Episcopal Church? You have the entire structure inverted, right? You have, you have parishes that exist to serve dioceses. You have dioceses that exist to serve a national structure. And then you have a national structure which is served by a $12.2 million gargantuan marathon which passes resolutions which are mostly irrelevant and hardly ever paid attention to, which spends two weeks out of people's lives once every three years. By the way, just in passing, if you're a layperson, you may be wondering, how in the world do you go to General Convention? Well, good luck. The short answer to that question is you have a very generous employer or you're independently wealthy or you're retired. John Claypool, he of blessed memory in the Diocese of uh, Alabama, who's now gone to be with the Lord, at St. Luke's, Birmingham, he had a woman who was a banker in his congregation. She did two general conventions by taking two weeks off of work, and her manager came to her after the second one and said, let me tell you how it is. You're going to have to make a choice. You either stop going to those meetings or you stop working for this bank. Because once she was gone for two weeks, the meeting itself is so utterly exhausting, 17 to 19 hours a day, for two weeks, that it's not as though it just takes two weeks out of your life and then you come back and just behave as normal. It takes two weeks at least just to detox from the two weeks you were gone. So he, what he was saying to the woman is, at the level of stewardship of employees, I can't do this anymore because I lose you for four weeks and I can't afford that. 
you got the idea of the archaic structure. And what's, what's amazing is it's almost all being resisted in, in every conceivable way. Just the suggestion of having one day less at General Convention, you'd have thought somebody suggested everybody take off all their clothes or something. In terms of the level of paranoia, that, that it, it's very much along the lines of Willimon, you know, entrenched bureaucracies resisting accountability. So um, to come back to where I started, and then I'll take some questions from you, uh, we're, we're modern where we should be archaic and archaic where we should be modern. We're modern in the sense that we've, we're in danger of increasingly losing our Christian identity and our Christian worldview. And these issues, what's, what's most important to me for you to understand is these issues are simply symptoms of a deeper disease. What you have here is a Christian church losing its Christian identity. And that, that is a devastating thing because we don't have anything to offer the world but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's all that we have. If it's just social service, there's, there's lots of groups that in many cases do it better than we do, right? And maybe you can get prayer in, in some other setting, etc., etc., etc. So we're losing our Christian identity, and that's because instead of going from the Christian tradition in the Bible out to these issues, we're going from ourselves and our context in. And then the second thing is, where we should be more modern, i.e. in our structures, we're as archaic as you can get. Can you believe? We, if you look at General Convention, you know what it reminds me of? Armonk, New York, and IBM. Do you know, those of you who know IBM and the headquarters in Armonk, New York? I mean, this giant bureaucratic hierarchical thing that goes you know, four, five, six layers at a time. And IBM doesn't work that way anymore, but we still do. And we're resisting change. So uh, we're a mess. Uh, pray for us. But be aware of the fact that you're in a church that's really struggling with its Christian identity. And one of the reasons the Diocese of South Carolina is trying to say no when we have to to these things is we want to stand up for the gospel. It's not that we intentionally want to be negative or say no, but we want to defend the faith. And that's one of the things that we're increasingly forced to do. So. Is this working now? Yes, it is. Kendall, thank you so much sure. for that lead-in. and. Uh, we are recording this this evening because we thought people may want to uh, have copies of this for other friends or other parts, members of the parish. So for the question and answer, we'd like to record that well as well. So have one microphone. Uh, we had two. One's missing. If you have it, we'd love to get it back. It's been missing for a few months. Um, and so I'm going to have to travel around a bit or uh, hand this to, for a question and um, I, do you have a recommendation of the best way to, I mean, do you want to do it in, you had three sections any, any there. Should want, we do it fine. randomly? It's or? fine. I, I have no idea how many people have let, questions about what. Well, let, let's, I, I would be inclined to try this. Yeah, I may be wrong. Try let's try uh, same gender um, liturgies, liturgies yes. first. Right. And we'll, we won't take forever on that, but we'll take some time there. Then we'll talk about the uh, uh, communion of the unbaptized. And... I would suggest we might spend the least amount of time on the restructuring of the church. Uh, right, that's but, probably wise. Yeah, okay. So, and, and uh, if y'all didn't notice, the big tall guy, uh, Gary Beeson's home from seminary over Yay. here. <laughs> he, he even looks smarter after a year. <laughs> He's learned a, he, learned, he learned a Hebrew word while he was in seminary. He can now say hallelujah, but he knows what it means in English. <laughs> and he knows one Greek word now, agape, and he can tell you it means love. So he has gotten a lot from his year of seminary. And uh, they're going to make him uh, not repeat it, but he has to go back for another, at least another full year. And uh, 
It's great to have you here. Welcome, our brother. We love you so much, and Sue, and your children. Would you like to ask the first question? No. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Tim, Tim would like to ask a question. Why is there so, is this working? Why is there so little talk about children in a same-sex marriage relationship? Wow. Um, did everybody hear the question? I, I want to make sure I don't need to repeat it. Uh, I th I'm just trying to think how the, those who are advocating the change would answer it. I mean, the short answer is uh, procreation is not a physical possibility, so it becomes less of a priority by definition. I think what they would say is the unjust nature of society rules that out for many of the couples that want a blessing. So the couples that want children are unjustly precluded from even the possibility of having them. And it's, therefore, they would say it's not there as much as it should be there because it's not possible for them, and that's not because they don't want it to be there, it's because it's not a possible choice. That would be the way that they would. They could adopt. In some states, she could, right. And that's good. Just because the president made a statement about agreeing to same-sex marriages, Aren't we kind of jumping the gun on, I mean, the law is, DOMA is uh, the defense of marriage in America, yeah. and um, it still is a law on the books in America. So aren't we kind of jumping the gun here and kind of forcing the issue? It's a, it's a good question. I think uh, th these kind of changes come in various ways through various structures and various pathways and uh, the, the Defense of Marriage Act, since you mentioned it, is well on its way out if the administration has anything to say about it, if you've been paying attention to what they're up to. They've made that very clear. And they're under a lot of pressure uh, to do that, by the way. New, new pressure, based on what he said. But f fair enough, uh, there, is a, there are very few states as of now that allow for same-sex marriage and, and a few allow for same-sex civil unions, but not same-sex marriage. Uh, but I think the deeper question is, simply because something's legal or permissible in a society doesn't make it right. And, I, and this is what's so hard for the Episcopal Church, is that our identity has basically been blessing the things that are around us in the culture, because we've been part of the leadership and the elite of the culture. And it's been a Christian culture at least by second and third hand influence. So we haven't had any trouble until now. We, and we've lost the entire Catholic idea. And the Roman Catholics are the ones who understand this. The church is by definition a society of contradiction, right? I mean, the martyr church comes from the martyr Jesus. And so, and so there are times when you have to stand over against and sometimes at great cost. You know, you, one thinks of Bonhoeffer, just to pick one example from the 20th century. You know, just about everybody in Germany was headed in a certain direction. And he would have none of it. And those who were part of the Confessing Church movement of which he was representative uh, paid dearly just for speaking. But they had to, uh, to be faithful to the gospel. And that's one of, I think what's important to see is that's increasingly likely the kind of situation we're going into, whether it's in this area or other areas. Uh, it's becoming less friendly territory. And that's okay, 
but we have to understand that it's changing and still be faithful. And that's going to require new skills and new postures from us. Do you see this as an attack on our constitutional right for freedom of religion? Do you see this as an attack on our constitutional right for freedom of religion? Not yet, although I, I have other issues with that on the, uh, the medical mandate and what the Roman Catholics are doing in response. But not, not yet here, but it could be, depending on how it ends up grinding its way through the courts at the rate we're going. Even though they don't say it with the uh, same gender thing, and it's rather curious, they're not saying about changing the canon regarding marriage. Yep. And, but to segue into the other thing of the communion of unbaptized, one talks about changing the canon. I was wondering if what implications for our diocese, if, if they change the canon, we say, well, we're not going to go along with it. Would it make things more difficult for our diocesan leadership? It's a good question. I think the, the short way to answer it is uh, initially it will be uh, simply permissible where, where bishops and dioceses want to authorize it. And it will be forced on no one. That will be the language. And then increasingly it will become more and more used. And then there will come a point when, when it's not used, that will be a problem. And then it will be coerced. That is, in fact, what's happened in other areas. So the canon will finally be changed, but, but practice will come ahead of it. That's the way that they've chosen to do it in the past. So the short answer to your very good question is, even though it won't seem like the pressure is building because it probably won't be immediately present in our own diocese, it will be subtly building in the church itself because once this happens, more and more dioceses are going to do it. Yep. I believe you said, and I think the church's position always has been, that there is marriage. People are either married or they're unmarried. Right. And the church has always took the position that sex outside of marriage has been a sin. Yes, sir. So I assume that the underlying our moves to have these the blessings is to provide for people to have sex within a marriage so they will not be in sin. That would be one of the justifications for some of the advocates. Or would we no longer recognize that perhaps sex outside of marriage is sinful? Well, of course, a lot, a lot of the leadership of the Episcopal Church doesn't recognize that either, increasingly, and so it becomes irrelevant. But yeah, I would say some of the people who are trying to defend the change would say exactly that. They're, they're saying, you're being unfair to us. We want to be monogamous, and we want to honor that aspect of the Christian tradition, but we can't because you won't give us a context. You need to give us a context to do it. What's intriguing to me is the advocates of the, for the change, if you, if you read them carefully, are actually in the midst of a huge debate among themselves. And the majority of them at, at the present time in the West are not in favor of marriage. That's what's so interesting. When I was at Oxford in the early 90s, Bishop Spong, now retired, came to London and gave a, 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 a lecture on this. And the community there hooted him down because he advocated monogamy. So. What's interesting is monogamy is actually not something that a lot of the people who advocate this change advocate, but some do, and that's one of the arguments they use. Mike, I'm not for same-sex marriage, but my greater concern is that perhaps the Anglican or the Episcopalian Church is leaving Christianity altogether right. 
when you have a presiding bishop who says that the route to God is not through Jesus Christ, um, that seems to defy the, the Trinity or the godly nature of Christ. But I think also, if, if we go back to the Bible, many times the faithful remnant has been reduced to a single family. And I'm wondering if it isn't time for us to dust off our feet and maybe leave the Episcopal Church. Well, the questions have gotten too hard now, so you can go home. Um, <laughs> I'll try to take it in turn. I mean, the, the, the first part uh, is an important thing, I think. Uh, the significance of the presiding bishop's interview in Time Magazine, which you referenced, is this. She was asked about salvation through Jesus, and she ran away from the question. And the simplest way to, to, to explain the significance of what she did is to ask yourself this question. How would Benedict XVI or Billy Graham have answered the question? And what they would have said is something like this. Of course, everybody who's saved is saved through Christ. And then they would have said something like, but you know, it's, it's a complex matter as to how that happens and who it happens to. But you understand, I mean, the, the Christocentric emphasis would have been, they would have just grabbed onto it, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And it would be second nature for either one of them. And if you read the Pope, he's very Christocentric in his basic thrust, amazingly, and I think refreshingly so. So, so you've got a leader who, who, who's, uh, anyway, not, not very Christian in her language or her concepts in terms of her public witness would be a nice uh, charitable way to say it. And, that, and that's simply representative of, of a church that's losing its Christian identity. And I think what you have to say about that is it's not for us simply that the culture is becoming increasingly hostile, but our own church is becoming hostile. And that makes our life trickier. The, the, the second question you asked is the harder of the two, which is strategically and as a diocese, how then do we respond? And all I can tell you in, in, in a short answer is this. The principles that you see in the time of judgment and exile, these are parts of the Bible we don't read. But uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all these parts that if you watch what goes on, they do two things. They, they differentiate themselves, right? And then they, they create uh, alternate supportive structures to make sure that they have a future. And they do that repeatedly, again and again and again. So we have to, we have to make sure to do, be doing both those things. And what you need to realize is, it's like a, somebody in a very dysfunctional or even a, abusive marriage. Uh, it's very hard to resist over a long period of time. But remember, I mean, have some sympathy for the exiles with, with Jeremiah. Seventy years, right? And after year 30, what are they doing? They're in, hi, I'm in Babylon. I'm Jewish, right? They have to keep saying that. I'm actually not a Babylonian. I'm Jewish. Well, what's, a, what's that? And then they have to explain. I mean, that gets exhausting. So, but, but, but the point is, you st you, so you have to distinguish by saying, I'm not that, I'm this. And increasingly, we are going to have to find ways as a diocese to do that if, if we don't ultimately find it necessary to leave. And if we do find anything that dramatic necessary, a bunch of us are praying that we do it as a whole diocese. That is to say, make it as a diocesan decision. And uh, we've been running out of room for the last five to ten years. So it's, it's something to pray about for the standing committee and the bishop, for sure. Are there also questions on 
the communion of the unbaptized, which as you all know is a clear policy in our diocese by our bishop that our parish obviously follows, but you hear us every week say all baptized Christians of any denomination are invited to receive and to be clear that those who are not yet baptized are welcome to the communion rail to, re to receive a prayer of blessing but not communion. And uh, that is in the, the 2000 tra year tradition of the church and that's where we still abide. But are there questions you see you know, in the actual resolutions, this uh, changing of our canons and changing of, uh, uh, again, it's a, it's a, we don't hear any about that around here because it's not done around here, but it's a huge yeah. sea shift yeah. in how you understand your life as a Christian in the world, to be in the world and not of the world, to welcome those who are seeking the Lord, but uh, what is, who is communion for, who did Jesus intend it for, and so on and so forth. But are there questions on this uh, this topic's running underground for us, but yeah. it's, it, obviously as resolutions, it's going to be front and center and c could easily be passed. I would think, unfortunately, it can, though it may be debated. But I think it'll probably be debated, and it's, it's an open question how far it gets. Yeah. But it certainly could be, depending on the atmosphere. And, and uh, I, we all have our own bias we bring to this. I, I just, I, as you all know, I'm a cradle-born Episcopalian, as we call ourselves, for better or for worse. I'm a three-generation priest, uh, very proudly in a line of a grandfather and father who were priests. So we cover, we span the 20th century uh, as in service to the church. And I, I simply do not recognize the Episcopal church of my grandfather and my father and my childhood as the church today. It, that to me, they are more and more unrecognizable. And so just because it has the same name doesn't mean it is the same thing that I, I knew it once was. And that's a huge heart problem and a theological problem and a relationship problem for me personally in terms of what does one do. Penny? The topic is access to Holy Baptism and Holy Communion. Right. Uh, what's the access to Holy Baptism issue? Well, you, that's, in the, that's in the resolution that's not after the canon, but the other resolution that's into asking for study, and it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a logical problem. See, this is the milieu that you've entered into. So, so think of it this way, okay? Increasingly, you begin to practice communion of the unbaptized in your parish, and you say baptism is the center of Christian life, and you have the central Christian meal for which baptism is not necessary. So what's the logical question? Why do I need to be baptized? It's optional. It, it's become optional. So, so, the, so the problem is you're in a church which claims baptism to be ever more important, at least in theory, but, but the practice is undermining that. So what that resolution is trying to do is to figure out a way to have both. <laughs> just as an interesting liturgical comment uh, but the changes between the 28 prayer book and I think all previous prayer books but certainly the 28 prayer book and 79 prayer book baptism was actually made front and center in the 79 prayer book it has its own yeah. section in a primary place it used to be in there with all the other pastoral offices and like marriage and confirmation they were kind of it was pulled out of that in the 28 prayer book and yeah. made to be primary I mean given primary attention as full initiation it's interesting that it's now um, morphing into something well I think I think this is the logical development of a church in the world of the liturgy of the 79 prayer book you're starting to see more and more of the theology logically worked out 
If you look at the wall up there, it says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Right. It doesn't say don't baptize them and go and do something else. Right. <laughs> it's right in front of us. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really good point. I mean, it's, it, it, it's interesting you should say that because the, the early Christian requirements for baptism are actually very minimal, but they were tenacious in holding to them. Uh, one was water, and the other was the threefold name. And that may seem odd to you, but we actually in America have somebody called the Jesus-only Pentecostals. I don't know if you've ever met them, but there actually is a Pentecostal sect in America that baptizes only in the name of Jesus. And that's the kind of thing that they were worried about running into. So it's, it's not very complicated if you focus on what's essential, but it's always there. Uh, th- think of Philip and the Andy, uh, Ethiopian eunuch that we just had in the liturgy just the other day in Acts, if you're, if you're going through the lit- he says, what is to prevent me from being baptized? <clears throat> bang, bang, bang. The point being that even if somebody wasn't baptized and became a Christian, the very next thing you would logically do is baptize them. Because that's what Jesus said, right? So bring them to faith, baptize them. And then if they raise kids, baptize the kids and, and pr- pray that the promise of the Father will come true in the next generation. It's, uh, well, for me, very postmodern kind of thinking yeah. because... Uh, Baptism is the doorway, the yes. gateway. And postmodernists say, well, why do you need a, a gateway? Why do you need a doorway? Right. So you eliminate it. And yet, if there's no doorway, how, there's no there there, to quote a right. friend of mine. Yeah. I mean, it just, it, it, be, it gets very mushy. Yeah. Yes. If these resolutions are passed, does that mean that Mike will have to comply? They won't be passed in that way at a national level yet. So the short answer is no, because the bishop won't have any of it, and it won't be part of anything in this diocese. But it will change the milieu, and so it will increase the pressure. And see, the other thing that, that this creates too, and you need to be aware of this, is there are no-go areas. Right? I mean, and this is actually now true, ironically, with communion of the unbaptized. I've had a couple of friends who've tried to get jobs and it's clear that they weren't able to make the final list of the final five for rector because they were going into a diocese and the, the committee asked them about this and they weren't willing to do it. And off the list they went. Right. So that's, and the, I'm using that as an example of the pressure that clergy feel. It, yeah. It's that kind of subtle pressure at first, but it will ratchet up. And, and Linda, to answer your question for me, I cannot comply. And that's what puts me at odds as a priest if our church and the authorization that my Episcopal church, even if it's not being done in this diocese or in this parish, but I'm now part of a community that has authorized it. The pressure does increase, but it's also I'm part of a community that authorizes it. How do I speak to other people? And when they say, well, you're an Episcopalian, you you all do that now. I said, well, we don't. He said, well, yes, you do too. I saw it, you know, da-da-da-da. It's... But I cannot do these things. Um, uh, Peter first, then Dickie, and then Bucky. It sounds like this is a leadership problem because as a layman, I know where I am with Jesus. Jesus, I walk with him. And so this is a, a leadership problem um, because we can come to church, we can love you, you, can, you have to take these, um, follow these directives. We don't. Can I be a bit subversive on that one? Um, you're certainly right. It is a leadership problem. But one of the things about all this that, that 
I'm increasingly bothered by is uh, the passivity and non-participation of the laity. And what you need to realize is this is, this is maddeningly hard for clergy because they work for the company. So they work for Coke and they've woken up and found that the company is selling Pepsi. And the, pr the problem is their family does not understand the full reality of that contradiction. It's hard to uh, act as a contradiction to something when it's part of your faithful daily activity and your brand and your livelihood. And one of the things that's, that people are missing in this is lay people have a huge role to play, particularly with the bishop and the standing committee. I mean, if, if it were up to me, I'd get 10, I, and I did this in another diocese, I think you should get 10 laity together and say, what in the world are you doing about this? Right? I mean, because, because we work for the church and we work for you. And let me tell you, if 10 laity come into a clergyman's office and sit down and say, we have something we want to tell you, they will pay attention. But the, 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 the lady's voice is the one that's not being heard. And the clergy are lost like deer in the headlights. I had an experience a couple of years ago where I called three of my friends. They were all at home hiding. And it's because they're immobilized and they don't know what to do. But see, the laity don't hide because they don't feel the acute pressure of working for the company every day. But they do in the sense that they're part of a community that's losing its identity. So ironically, I think the laity are in a better position to do more because they have a fresh voice and they have an enormous, well, I mean, bottom line, they pay the bills, right? I mean, that, that's the vestry's responsibility is to be stewards of the, bu the buildings and the, and the congregation. Dickie and then Bucky. We need you, we want to get you on recorded. I was just going to comment that Mike just mentioned that uh, if that situation ever occurred, that Mike could not comply. And I was just thinking how refreshing it must be to know that his bishop, our bishop, would never make him comply because he's the kind of man of God that would not allow us to comply in that way. And I want to say, what an amazing bishop we do have in this diocese. What an amazing priest we have. We need to be thank God for that and continue to keep them in our prayers. You are right to say that. Let me uh, ratchet up the pressure, though, for you in this way, because uh, I've had this conversation now multiple times. There is a sense in which, because we're not at General Convention or in one of these dioceses where this stuff is all being pushed aggressively every day, we don't understand the full weight of what's going on. But let me just remind everybody here, if Mark Lawrence goes to be the Lord tomorrow, and I want to be clear because it's on tape, I'm not wishing for that. <laughs> I, I, I love my bishop. But, but, but if Mark Lawrence were to pass from this world to the next tomorrow, we could not get Mark Lawrence elected in this diocese and approved today. You need to realize that. We have no future in the Episcopal Church as a diocese. Period. Now. We could not get it. Now, I, I'm glad he's here, but you understand, I mean, that... That should bother more people than it's, than it's bothering. And that's because whereas he got approved before, he could not get approved now. I'm absolutely convinced of that. Because the church is increasingly hostile to the theology that he advocates. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you for being here and sharing from your heart thank you. uh, something I know is heavy on your mind. <clears throat> What I struggle with in this is we're being attacked. And we, Peter, and you and me, know what we believe. How do we do like the Marines do the Chosen? 
attacked the rear. We are not taking the battle in an offensive manner, and you just basically touch that particularly here, yeah. against the people who are probably heretical in what they're saying, and certainly blasphemous, if not something worse. Yeah. And they have not just <clears throat> taken from the Episcopal Church, as someone pointed out earlier, this is a Christianity, an attack on Christianity from within yes, it is. issue. Yes, it is. How do we address that as Christians?